Malachi. What a book. What a story of a man, of a prophet, of a messenger who, just being obedient, God says, here it goes, you got a message to deliver to my people in Israel. And you, you're going to have to let them know there's some things that aren't going so well, and there's, there, there's some, some things that I'm going to need to address, but I need you, Malachi, to be my spokesman, to speak this truth to the people. And Israel is in a really weird place. They, they have had their ups and their downs as a nation. They're supposed to be the ones that have been set apart. They're supposed to be the nation that, that is worshipful, and, and everything about them should look completely different from all the surrounding countries that surround them. But they find themselves in this position to where it's not that they look any different. They actually are mimicking and looking the same. And so God tells them that I will always keep my hand of blessing upon you if you will follow in my ways and keep my commandments, and you will get the blessing. And Israel, not believing that, decided to test it. And they found themselves on a couple of occasions in slavery. And so Israel goes into a Babylonian slavery, and if you guys read the book of Daniel, that's all a part of the Babylonian slavery. And they get into the slavery... And for 70 years, everything that they had, their places of worship, they didn't have a temple, they didn't have a land, they, things were being confused because even the Babylonians were pulling them in and changing their names, changing their cultures, changing their identities. And we saw that with, with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their names, everything had been changed. And after these 70 years, God says, okay, come home. The people are released, and over time... They would find their way back into their homeland of Israel. But while there, they would go right back to their ways. So it's been 100 years since the time that they've come back. They've, they've had more than enough time to rebuild, not just the structures of their, their towns, their communities, their cities, but they also had time to reinstate the principles that God had given them. And when we get to Malachi, the reason this letter is being written because they did not do those things. And it did not go well. So God's going to write to them through the prophet Malachi. He's going to give them the six warnings of, I need you to understand, this is not going to go well for you if you continue on the path that you're going on. So God lays out these six corrections to his people. But before he does that, the first words out of his mouth in Malachi chapter 1 was him proclaiming his love over his children. Because correction always comes better from the person that loves you than the stranger who wants to critique you. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's cool for you to correct your child. But when the person in the store, the random person that you don't know corrects your child, it doesn't, it doesn't feel right, right? Then you want to go into parent mode of making some corrections yourself. So God, being the father that he is, is fixing to give them some very strong words. But before he does so, he wants to remind them, I love you. Before there's any kind of correction that takes place, God is looking to connect with his people so that they understand this is not out of spite, this is not out of anger, this is not because I don't love you anymore, this is because I expect more out of you. You know some of the worst punishments you probably ever had as a teenager, and, and I have had, is, man, I just really expected a whole lot more. Right? I would rather take spankings all day and groundings all day and take whatever. I didn't, we didn't have phones to take. I don't know what we got taken from us. Time, I guess. But it's, it's just something 
when God steps in and says, this is what it's supposed to be. And if you can't do it, there are things that are taken. And so the correction that he's going to give Israel, we have to understand this because it's the same way God operates with us. It's coming out of a deep place of love and care and compassion and mercy because we are his sons and his daughters. And so Israel asks this question because God gets in, he sends this message to Malachi saying, hey, I've loved you and I've done all these things. And Israel goes, whoa, how have you loved us? And I'm thinking, well, you're still alive. Like you, you're not in Babylon anymore. You, you could still be there. They, he could have given Israel to someone else, the promised land. You know, he, he could have just struck you dead. So there, there's a couple of, a couple of things, but, but they ask. And think about how bold this is. God, how have you loved me? What have you done? G- give me your list of things that you've done for me. So God reminds them that he loves them even before they were made. That there's always been this father-son love. And then he says this to them in, in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, your own eyes shall see this, and you will say, great is the Lord beyond all the borders of Israel. He, he's given them this promise. Your eyes will see how much I love you. Because there, there's the Messiah is getting ready. Like he's, he's gotten up off the throne, he's stretching, he's ready to step in to your world. You're going to see it, and your worship of just thinking that all these things just happen right here in Israel, my worship's not going to be stuck. It's not, it's not in, in a geographical location where this is where the worship of God happens, because there's going to be a moment where you're going to see it, that my worship and my name will be made great outside of this place. Even in Babylon, they're going to proclaim me as God, one way or another. And so God's saying, it's more than what you think. It's not just you. There's a love not just for you, but even the person that you consider to be your enemy, there's a love for them. And so he's given them this this strong word that their eyes will one day fully see all that has been promised and all that will be fulfilled. And, And when you understand, when your eyes see this, because you and I have a different advantage, we have seen the goodness of God. We have experienced the goodness of God. When you step into the presence of God and you experience who he is and you experience that unconditional love, the first thing that should happen for us is it should be a response. The gospel demands a response from us. And so when we see God for everything that he is, there should be a response. And that first response that we would have would be our worship. What what do we give of ourselves to, to proclaim the goodness and the greatness of our God. So this is going to lead to the first correction that Malachi is going to give to the people on behalf of God. And he says this in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, this is God speaking, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you. And I want you to pay attention to who he's speaking to very specifically here. He says, oh, priest. These are supposed to be the people who are supposed to keep the worship going. These are the, the ones that are supposed to point people to God. And he says this, oh, priest, who despise my name. But you say, there's always a, 
I want you to imagine a teenager. You're, you're trying to correct them, and they're talking back to you, right? We've all been there. We've all done that. He says that you have despised my name. And he says, but you say, you priests say, how have we despised your name? So if you'll notice in, in the first parts of, of 1 through 5, the question is when, when he says how much he loves them, and they, they, they come back with it, well, how do you love us? Now they're going, not how do you love us, but how have we even despised your name? What are we doing so wrong that your name's being despised? So God is asking as a father, where is my worship? To the priest. To the priest. Not, he hasn't gotten to the people yet. He's, because leadership flows from the top down, right? A lot of Israel's issues is they're not being led right. And, and so he says, where is my worship? Because what you're doing is you're not worshiping. You're going through the rituals of these things, but you're not worshiping with all of your heart. You're not putting everything into your worship. What you're doing is you're half-heartedly doing this. And it's your fault because you're leading my people in the wrong way. And then they decide to push back again. And, they, and then with the pushback is, how do we despise? How, do we, how are we even doing this? So what they want to know from God is, you give us some evidence of how we're doing that. Because we're showing up every week. We're giving. We're sacrificing. We're doing all these things. How have we despised your name? Because in their minds, they had already made their checklist of everything that they've done. And then God, he responds. And he says this in verse 7. You know, how, how have you despised my name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. Like not even bringing the best. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Why don't you present that to your governor? Will he accept you or will he show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. God's saying, you know what? You, you bring me these sacrifices and you bring me a goat that's missing a leg. You bring me a lamb that is spots all over it and dirty and it can't even see straight and it's walking into everything. And, and you won't even give that to your governors. You, you won't even give that to the head of Rome. So you want to know how you despise my name? Look at the junk that you're bringing to me. Isn't it interesting that we, that, that the best of us, we don't ever give to God? It's always the leftover. I'll give you your one hour a week. I'll show up on Sunday or I'll show up to that group and we'll compartmentalize our worship and we won't bring our best. He says that you, your politicians wouldn't even accept the gifts that you're bringing to your king. Again, who's he writing this to? This is coming to the priest right now, all right? This, this, Y'all know the old southern phrase, been taken behind the woodshed? Y'all ever been taken behind the woodshed? We didn't have a woodshed in Dillon. We just had tobacco fields, and that was, that was bad. He says, you wouldn't bring these things to my politicians. And he gets down to verse 12. He says this, and this is, this is hard. This is hard to hear. If, if you're in their shoes, it's hard to hear for us today because don't, don't get it twisted. This is a message for the priest, but the word of God is still very relevant to us today and he says this but you profane it when you say that the lord table is polluted and it's fruit that is it's, it's it's food may be despised but you say what a weariness this is and you snort at it says the lord of hosts 
You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. And listen to God's statement after he does this. He, he makes this, this proclamation. For I am a great king. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name will be feared among the nations. You might not get it, but everybody else will get it. So why is it the people that are closest to me aren't getting it, but those who are far from me will? Because they'll make this proclamation. God is upset with these these sacrifices, because you may be saying, well, aren't we supposed to sacrifice animals? Well, yeah, they were supposed to sacrifice animals. But in, in Leviticus chapter 12, or in Levit the book of Leviticus, I don't know if you guys have hung out in the book of Leviticus. There's some strange things going on there, but that's a whole other series um, that will take us about 15 years to understand. But he says very specifically, when you make sacrifices, this is what you're supposed to bring. These are the, don't bring lambs that are all messed up or, or one that got hit by a chariot, you know, and limping. What I'm looking for is clean, unblemished, spotless sacrifices. Don't bring that other mess up in here. And he lays it out. Spotless, healthy, clean animals. Because these animal sacrifices played a central role in the worship that was in the temple during this time period. In the first century. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. So if you go to Israel today and you go and ask, hey, I'd love to see the temple, they're going to tell you, well, it ain't here. Like, they'll take you to the temple mount where it used to be, but there is no temple. And when the temple went away, the animal sacrifices went away. So if you're going to Israel with us in 2023, 2024, whenever we're going, 23, it's 2022. I'm really, really good with numbers. Um, we will not see any animal sacrifices, so that is not on the agenda of things to see. But they don't, they don't sacrifice animals now because there is no temple, so what they've done in, in response to that is they go to the synagogues and they study the scriptures, and, and that's all they do is study the scriptures. But they will say that when the, temple, when the, when the new temple is rebuilt, that they will reinstate their animal sacrifices. There's going to be a lot of upset HOAs um, with animals just being cut up in yards. But the deeper thing is this. Yes, there was a strict structure of what was supposed to happen. But the deeper thing here is not the animals. It's the heart of the people bringing them. Okay? It's the heart. The reason they're supposed to bring these perfect animals is because it is a declaration of a perfect God. The perfect animal to be sacrificed is a declaration that there is a perfect, sinless, spotless lamb that will be the sacrifice for once and for all. Oddly enough, on the same mountain that the temple was on, Mount Moriah. And he's telling them, this is a declaration. So there has to be, these have to be perfect because the declaration that is being made is, is, is costly. It's going to cost Jesus his life, and it's going to take our sins, and it's going to wash them, and we're going to be made new through the sacrifice of Jesus. So these, you could say that these perfect sacrifices are like little breadcrumbs that are being left, that one day the people of Israel are going to wait a second. This is the sacrifice. This is the one. So we could say this, that they, they, have, a, they have a little bit of a heart problem, okay? 
Their, their heart's not in the worship. Because if you'll look at verse 13, he says this. He says, but you say, what a weariness this is. What a weariness this is. What, God, this is, it's just so much. Like, I have to get up early, and I've got to go find the right lamb, and I've got to make change, and I've got to, you know, it's all these different things. God, it's just, I'm just tired. I'm just tired. I, I can't. I can't do that. Have you ever been in a position where you're just weary of worship? Like, there have been days that we've all come in here, and it's just like, I'm here. That's about it. I'm here. <laughs> it's like, I hope God moves, because I'm, I'm here, because I don't know that I can. There have been days that you've, you've come in here, or you've, you know that you need to sit down and just spend some time with God, but you're just not feeling it. You ever, you ever been there? Like, I'm weary. I'm tired. I'm, I'm just not feeling it today. And then you, you, you're here, and you just feel like you've got to go through the motions. Right? Is it, it's got quiet. Or, or anybody besides me? Okay. Good. Because if not, we've got to talk about confession. I don't want to get into that right now. But maybe a hard circumstance has made you where you don't want to worship. Maybe that's why your heart's not in it. The, the first thing we do when we come up against things that are difficult is we pull away from the very thing that would get us through it. You got a problem right now? Worship your way through it. Because when your eyes are fixated on God, what's the worst that could happen? Because you're not worried about all the other junk that's surrounding you because my eyes are fixated on the author and the perfecter of my faith. And there are days that we may not feel like it, but you worship through it. You praise Him, you thank Him, you, you anchor yourself in his word. But there are days that our hearts aren't in it because we've gotten out of rhythm. Our hearts have been out of rhythm. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been there. But because there are moments that in these relationships with him, you find yourself eventually where you're just kind of going through the mechanics of church. We go, we get coffee, we shake four hands, we sit. We sing a couple of songs, I hear a message, and I leave. And then I'll do that again next week. And it just kind of becomes a mechanic. Because if you'll think about the fire that was in your soul when you, you said, Jesus, save me to where we are now, what, what, what has happened? Because it's a dangerous thing that we can do. We can do all the right things and find out that it's not right. We can sing all the right songs and hear all the right messages and find out it's not right. Because our hearts are, are separated from it. So what do you do when, when you don't want to worship God with all of your heart? When, when you have those moments where it's difficult. And can I just tell you, worship's not a personality type. Well, I'm just not an expressive person. Oh, yes, you are. I, I can spend a few minutes and talk about that you are an expressive person because there's something that you're expressive about. Like, if I yelled game for this side of the room, what happens to this side of the room? Yeah, blue, boo, okay, Clemson people in the room. But if the Clemson people, if I started spelling out C-L, oh, y'all quiet today because we won last night. That's what it is. But we can be passionate about things we're passionate about. Right? We can be passionate about things that we're passionate, that we want to be passionate about. It, it, worship is not a personality type. It's not waiting on a good circumstance for us to be able to worship. You can rely on you can't rely on mountaintop experiences, right? Like we, we could we could flood this place with, with haze and, and lights that like do everything and strobe you and make you feel like you're having seizures, and, and we can create these responses. 
We can create them. Not hard. Expensive, but not hard. And then you walk out of here, and nothing of, the, of God connected with you, because it was just an experience, and you can only ride that experience for so long. Like, your marriage right now is not still riding, unless you got married, like, within the last week. But your marriage right now is not still riding on the experience of the wedding. A am I right? Like, it's not, your marriage isn't so good right now because we had an incredible wedding 50 years ago. The cake was perfect. The photographer was perfect. The music was perfect. No, what is the thing that sustains your marriage? It's relationship. It's spending time knowing the heart of your spouse. And so we can't rely on these mountaintop experiences to keep sustaining us because you've got to learn to worship God in the valley as much as you do on the mountaintop. Right? You got, we talked about the, a couple of weeks ago that your testimony in the storm can be more powerful than your testimony outside of the storm. Same thing with your worship. It's more effective within the storm. So the question is, what is at the heart of worship? What is it that sustains and stirs our affections for the Father? What, what is that? And this passage is going to give us five things. We're going, to, we're going to talk about these real quick. But there are five things that are at hand of worship. And the first one is at the heart of worship is the character and the nature of God. We've got to know what we're worshiping and who we're worshiping. Because a lot of times we, we will worship God and we won't even fully understand it. Like, for instance, y'all didn't catch this, but that last song that we sing, um, When You Walk Into a Room, that's a really good song. But when we were discussing that song um, and reading the lyrics, there was a line in that song that theologically just did not feel good when it says, God, we give you permission for all that you are. Take me, take me, you can have me. God, we give you permission. Now, last time I checked, I don't give God permission to do anything, right? Anybody? You follow that? We can't make those proclamations and declarations to God. God, we give you permission. And God's going, huh, that's interesting. Explain more. Explain some more. I, I feel it's like when Job started questioning God, and, he was, and God goes, well, Job, where were you when everything was created? I'm waiting, right? We, we, we can't be saying things like that. We take that stuff very seriously about what we sing. Because if we start singing, because what you sing is what you believe. And by the way, out of all the commands of God, you know, don't, don't, be, don't have fear, be bold, be courageous. You know what one of the top commands that God gives us is? Singing. Because it's an expression of what he's doing on the inside. And so we have to be careful what it is that we sing, because then we'll start believing what it is that we sing. God, we give you permission. Now I'm just telling God what he can and can't do in my life. And we've, we've missed the whole thing so it's important at the heart of worship is that you know the character and the nature of your God, of your Father. He says this in verse 6, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am your father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? You remember in verse 14, he says that, I am a great king. 
God's setting the record straight. I am a great, you may not think it, because you're not seeing me, and you don't understand my character and my nature. Maybe you see the 70 years of punishment in Babylon as I don't love you, but that wasn't I don't love you. That was, hey, you need to go to your room and sit for just a little bit. Right? And so he begins this with saying, I am your, I am your father. I am, I am the God who is personal. I want to have a relationship with you because all these other gods and all these other places that surround them are not personal gods. They're little statues. But he's saying, you call me father because you are my sons and my daughters. He says, I am your God. God's not waiting on you to mess up so he can hit you in the head like a -a whack-a-mole game. But we live in a fear. that I I know I messed up this week. There's no way I can come into this room and start singing stuff to him knowing the sin that is in my life. Don't forget what Paul said. There is no condemnation in Jesus. You're going to have to worship your way through some sin, and a part of worship is confessing those sins to the Father with understanding that he's not going to crush you or, or tell you that you can't be a part of the family anymore. You might get sent to your room for a little bit because there, there are going to be consequences for our sin. But you don't. the consequence is never that our Father stops loving us. And so he says this, that not only is he a father, but he is a master. Now we hear that and we think taskmaster. God's not a taskmaster. Master here is as it, it means Lord, or, or other, in other words, I am in complete control of everything that happens. That's good news for us, that our Father is in complete control. Nothing happens on his watch that he is not aware of. There's never been a moment where God was caught off guard. Can I get an amen with that? Never been a moment where God's been caught off guard. So I don't know what you're going through, whether good or bad. God's very much aware. And you might be asking, why has he not intervened himself into this situation? I would ask this question. Have you asked him? Have you gone into prayer and asking him to show himself and what it is that you want him to do? He's always been in control. But sometimes he just lets you go do your thing. Because you know, eventually we will come back and realize it was not a good thing. Six times he refers to himself in this passage, I am the Lord of hosts. And that translates to Yahweh, the name Yahweh, which means this is, this is a really, when Moses went and asked God, you want me to go tell, like, free to people, and you want me to go give this message to Pharaoh, I need a name, my man. Like, I can't just say that this bush that was burning, that's not going to fly. I need a name. And God said, all right, I am. Moses is like, uh, more? I am, God said, I am what I am. Now, how does that translate? It doesn't tell you how it translates. I will be who I will be. I will be who I will be. Isn't it amazing that God calls us his beloved in the New Testament? It's a translation back into his name. And when you stop and think about who the mystery of God is, he is a, he's a great king, and a great king provides, a great king protects, he protects his people. And if you think about this for a moment, look over your life and think about those times that God has provided. And even if it's the little things that God has provided, whether it was resources with people, an encouraging word at the right time. But think about the times that God has provided. If we stop and think about these things, they will stir our hearts for worship because we'll realize how good of a king he is. We can't stop talking about it. So we have to make every effort to ensure that our lives 
are centered on Jesus. Because if we're not careful, here's what happens. We can move ourselves into the center of worship, and we can move God out. And it's not about us. Because if the worship becomes about us, it is now unsustainable. It will just be mechanics of going through the motions. When it's about you, it has to be bigger and better and more. I don't want to live in that stress. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't want to do that. If he's got the name that is above every name, I don't need to be making a name for myself. That we worship him because, again, he is a great king. So when it's about him, it's his character and his nature in the spotlight. Also at the heart of worship is the grace of God. Now thank God for his grace. If you don't know what that is, that is what you don't deserve. I've always broken it down like this. I was taught this. I went to FCA camp in high school. I don't know why I went. Yeah, I did. There was a girl that went and I went. Not my wife, but see, God works. And so it's grace. and It's God's reward at Christ's expense. We got a reward that somebody else paid for. We got to the register to pay the bill on our sin that we couldn't pay because our accounts were depleted, and Jesus swiped his card of his blood and paid for it. That's grace. He says this in, in 1 9. And now entreat the favor of God. Beg, plead for the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. That word favor throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word grace. New Testament in Greek, it's charis. When you don't feel like worshiping God, we have to put our eyes on his grace. While we were dead in our trespasses, y'all remember that verse? We were dead. What does dead people do? Anybody? Nothing. They don't do anything. I don't know if you've been around dead people, but let me give you a little hint. They do nothing. While we were dead in our trespasses, but God being rich in his mercy, because of his great love, he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were useless. And he made us alive with Christ. He resurrected us. He gave us his breath. And by grace, you have been saved. Nothing that we've done. See, I don't give God permission. Because I'm dead. Dead people don't give permission. They don't just go, hey, I'm over here. I'm dead. Could you move my body, please? Those things have to be made before death. The only thing that you and I bring to salvation is the sin that is necessary for the salvation. That's the part you play. So when life needs to be injected into worship, you and I have to focus on the grace of God. We didn't earn any of this. We didn't deserve any of this. But God being rich in his mercy and me dead in my trespasses, he gave me life in Christ. By grace, I have been saved. Here's the other thing. At the heart of, at the heart of worship is the once and for all death and resurrection of Jesus. Amen? Like, because none of this happens without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. If It would just be another religion. And he says in verse 10, Oh, that there were just one among you who would shut the doors. And remember, he's, again, who's he talking to in this moment? He's talking to the priest. There's a whole church staff. And he's saying, Oh, if there was just one on your church staff that were among you who would shut the doors, or other, other words, stop the cycle, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord. Could you imagine that word being said to you? You're a leader in the church. You're supposed to be directing God's people. You have one job, worship, 
And God goes, if there was just one of you, just, just one, I'll take anybody, just one. And he says, I, I, man, at this point, I, I take no pleasure in, in what you're doing. He says, I will not accept an offering from your hand. Do you know the one who shuts the door on the cycle of earning God's approval is Jesus? The one that should keep us from going through the motions of worship and making this mechanics is Jesus. Jesus stops this cycle of worshiping in vain. We spend so much time trying to build churches, and he says, man, you, you labor in vain because I'll build my house. You just, without the Lord, you just labor in vain. And, and what they were building here, they were building nothing but this false sense of security of worship that it wasn't. The book of Hebrews tells us over and over again that Jesus lived this perfect life, died a sinner's death. He's resurrected, and he's the one who shut the door on this whole earn your salvation. If your heart's lagging in worship, then here's my, my suggestion. Remind your heart what Jesus did. Let that stop you in your tracks for a minute. The heart of worship is also the promises of God. You have his grace, you have his salvation. But there are going to be days that you're going to need to be sustained. And you're going to have to remember some things. You're going to have to remember his promises. He says in verse 11, For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. Now how many times have you heard God say in this passage, my name will be great? And he says, in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. That will be phrase, that's a promise of God. In other words, it will happen. In 2 Corinthians chapter 120, Paul says that all the promises of God will be yes and amen in him. All of them. All of them. And the reason being, because Jesus got out of the grave. And now they're going to be true. All these promises will come to fulfillment. The Bible is filled with 7,487 promises. And every single one of them is yes in Jesus. Every single one. So if your heart is lagging in your worship, you need to claim some promises. For instance, Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear. I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous hand. That's a promise. Romans 8.38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor neither demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's a promise. What about 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where he says, My grace is sufficient for you. My, my power is made perfect in your weakness. This is why you got to be in the Word. you got to be storing this stuff. Because there are going to be days the enemy is going to attack, and you're, you're going to come in here and you don't want to worship because you haven't been on that high moment. But you remember the promises that God says, I, you will be protected. You are loved. You are cared for. You are mine. My grace is sufficient for you. You've you, you got to remember the promises of God. Here's the last one. The heart of worship is that God is a global God, and God is for everybody, all people. He keeps making the same statement over and over about these nations. My name's going to be great among these nations. Israel is so one-sided that it was only about us. Churches can get like that. It's just our church. And we forget about everybody outside of these walls. 
And he says in verse 14, for I am a, say this with me, for I am a what? My goodness, he says, the Lord of hosts. And my name will be feared. And this isn't fear like I'm scared of you. This is a fear of reverence. He says in Habakkuk, for the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It will just cover everybody. He says, I want to make your name great among the nations. In Revelation chapter 7, we get this picture that John gives us a scene of people who have been gathered around the throne. And it's these nations. These nations that are around the throne of God. And they're, they're people from every nation every tribe, every tongue. It's a, it's a place of worship represented by everybody. That's why there can be no place in the church for racism and bigotry because the throne of God is going to look completely different than what a lot of people think it's going to look like. It's going to be every nation represented in unison singing the praises of God, making his name great. God doesn't need us to brand him and create great brands and to create great experiences. What God needs us to do is to proclaim his name of his goodness. He's not a brand. He is a great king. He doesn't need logos. He doesn't need quick, subtle statements. He doesn't need full series about him. God is self-sustaining in himself. What he... He's not telling us that you will do this. No, out of our overflow, out of what we know, we're going to make that proclamation. I know a great God because he has been good to me. And I believe in what he did. And there's going to be a day, and this is why we do missions. This is why we serve outside of this place. That, our, that worship is not just a singing. It's more than just a song. But it should drive us outside of this place to meet the needs of, of other people. Proclaiming the gospel to other people. It's more than singing. And by the way, some of you say, I don't sing because I'm not a good singer. You think God's judging you? He created you. He knows if you can sing or not. You know what I mean? What, what about the person next to me? If the person next to you is complaining to you because you're not a good singer, look at them and be like, God made me that way. Deal with it. It's okay. Because I think God loves. I think God loves to. It's almost like turning up the radio when he hears his kids singing. Just turn up the radio. Because it's our response to his grace and his goodness and to his salvation and to who he is. I do not want to be a church where God would have to send a messenger like Malachi saying, what are y'all doing? You're just standing there. Do you not know how our good, our, our, the way we worship is a direct correlation with our relationship with God. Remember the disciples always got accused, these guys have been with Jesus. Because they act different, look different, sing different. I mean, y'all can't tell me that Peter is singing key. Like, he had a lot of things going on in his life. I don't believe he was a good singer. He was a fisherman. But it didn't stop them from worshiping. We have got to get back to the simple parts of of worship it's our heart we're gonna sing a very very old song okay because I believe that it, it just de declares who who we need to get back to as, as a body as individuals of worship is that if we stripped everything we had out of here if you showed up next week and all there were were chairs there's no sound system 
There was no ban. We didn't have words printed on a piece of paper. Could we still worship if all was stripped away and it was just us and our Father? That's where we're trying to get. Not to where we just take everything away, but we're trying to get to that place where that would be okay. Because it's not about the stuff. We don't worship the creation. We worship the creator. So in these next moments, I want to challenge you to do something. I just draw an individual circle around you. That is you and God in this moment. And in that moment, your response, I want you to pray. Maybe you need to repent because your worship has not been anything but just standing. You haven't done anything outside of here. You, you, can't, you, like, you feel like this is just mechanic. God, God's not mad at you. What, today what he wants to do is set you free from those things. So just stand in your little circle and proclaim him as your God who is great among every nation. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. God, we, we repent if there has been any moments that we have worshipped you, not in spirit and in truth, but out of burden, out of because we have to. We repent of that. You're, you're a better God than what sometimes we perceive. God, I pray that, that you would do a work in all of our hearts, that we would all make this proclamation this morning, that you are God and you are good. Let us sing your praises. May it rise as incense to you and be pleasing. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.